This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Well, good morning. It's good to be with this morning and greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I haven't had the privilege of meeting you yet. My name is Jeff, and I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Church. And what a joy it is to be here together today. If you have your Bibles with you, if you could please open to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. You can find the Gospel of Luke by looking at the table of contents. Flip it forward uh, from that into what's known as the New Testament, the books of the Bible that are written after Jesus came to earth. Luke is one of the four biographies that are written about Jesus. There's the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke. And John, and for the past two years, we've been in a very long series in this Gospel of Luke. We've taken several breaks at various points, but this has been the main thing that we've been studying together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we've been taking such a long and thorough look at this Gospel account because Luke wrote this account for a man named Theophilus who is actually very similar to us in that he had not seen Jesus firsthand for himself. And so Luke got together a bunch of eyewitnesses, a bunch of people that did know Jesus, that were with Jesus, and we're told in the very first chapter of this gospel that he compiled all those accounts to give this gospel. Gospel means good news. This book is all about the good news of who Jesus is and the good news of what that means for each and every one of us. And so we've been calling this series Jesus Unfiltered because that's what Luke gives us. He gives us an unfiltered view of Jesus, stripped away from all that religion and time has added over the years. And we need to take this look at Jesus because the Christian faith is not some kind of abstract various religious doctrines, nor is it a certain kind of moral code of conduct. No, at the heart of Christianity is Christ, is Jesus who is the Christ. And all of our life is meant to flow from our faith in Him. And so that's why we're taking this long look at who He is. It's been a while, so let me remind you of where we're at in this story. Jesus, in chapter 22, has arrived in Jerusalem and is preparing to die on the cross. We saw in our last sermon, that was several months ago, uh, but we saw in verses 14 through 23 of chapter 22 that Jesus was eating a Passover meal with his disciples. So they were all a bunch of Jewish people, and so they were celebrating the Passover meal together. But in the Passover meal, Jesus took time to explain how really this meal was about himself. He broke bread and said that my body is going to be broken for you. He took wine, the color of blood, and said my blood is going to be spilled for you. And he instituted what is known as the Lord's Supper, the meal that now Christians take by faith as we remember what Jesus has done for us. And so this is what's going on. This is the context. Jesus just shared this meal where he's saying, here's all that I'm going to do for you. Here's how I'm going to die for you. And not only that, he talks about how one of them who was sitting at the table was going to betray him. One of these people who are part of his inner circle were going to be the ones who are actually going to deliver him over to the Roman rulers so that Jesus would be killed. Jesus has talked about his death and he's talked about his betrayal. And we pick up in verse 24 of chapter 22 
with the conversation that takes place after this meal. We pick up with what the disciples are talking about after Jesus has just shared his heart. And today we're going to read verses 24 through verse 34. Let's turn our attention to God's inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your, your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Praise God for his word may be with us now through the preaching of it. I'm trying to picture this scene. Jesus has just bared his heart with his closest friends that he's about to die. And not only is he about to die, but that he's going to be betrayed by one of them. And how do these guys respond? They start fighting about which one of them is going to be the greatest. Like, are you serious? I mean, I just picture the scene. Jesus is like wiping tears out of his eyes, having just kind of like poured his heart out to his closest friends. And these guys, they still think that Jesus had come to set up an earthly kingdom, and they're arguing about which one of them is going to have the most prestigious position in that kingdom. What must Jesus have been thinking? What must Jesus have been feeling? Like, I'd expect this to be another place where Jesus kind of looks at his guys and is like, what is wrong with you? And he just takes their heads and starts like knocking them together. That's not what he does. He doesn't actually correct them at all for desiring greatness. But rather, he actually tells them in verse 26, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is the one who serves. Notice what he's doing here. He isn't correcting their desire for greatness. He's actually giving them a path for how they can pursue greatness. Why is Jesus doing this? Because Jesus knows how we're made. He's God and he's the one who made us. And he knows that he has hardwired us with a desire for greatness. Think about it. When we go out to eat, do we ask the waiter, hey, what's the most average thing on the menu? No, actually, scratch that. Tonight, I want to go below average. Like, no, we ask, what's the best thing here? What's the, we, want, we want the greatest. When we go to watch a movie or a show, like, we don't look for what's mediocre right now. 
No, we want to know it's hot. We want to know it's like what's this grace, grace thing that, that we can see. When we go to root for our sports team, we, we don't hope that like, you know what, today, I'm just hoping for a so-so effort. It's like, no, we want them to be great, and we want join in that greatness. Eagles fans, I think it's going to be a long season. We've got to strap ourselves in and get ready. We're hardwired to desire greatness. God has made us this way because God wants us ultimately to desire Him. See, God is the greatest being in all existence, and so ultimately, our desire for greatness, He put in us in order to direct us to Him who is the greatest. And so this is why Jesus does not correct these guys for their desire, because there's nothing wrong with their desire, what was wrong with how they were seeking to achieve their desire. He doesn't correct their desire for greatness, but He does inform them about how they can truly be great. Listen, friends, God wants us to have a truly great life. He does. But he knows that the great life can only come through living by how he defines greatness in his kingdom. We've seen Jesus talk extensively about his kingdom throughout this gospel, God's kingdom. Notice in verse 29, Jesus says, I've assigned to you a kingdom. The whole context of this section is that Jesus is describing what life is like within God's kingdom. And as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus is speaking about God's kingdom, he's not speaking about a geographical location, nor is he speaking about an ethnic designation. He's speaking about a spiritual condition. God's kingdom is the spiritual condition of people living with God as their king, living for the joy of honoring God by following God's commands. That's the kingdom of God. But there's another kingdom. There's the kingdom of this world. The kingdom of this world is where we live with ourselves as king, where we live to follow our own desires, where we live to seek to find joy in honoring ourselves by being obedient to me. And so these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, are in opposition with each other. But Jesus knows that his kingdom is going to win. Jesus knows that his kingdom is the one that is truly going to last. And so he does not want us to live for the values of the kingdom of this world, which will soon die out and not give us any lasting meaning. He wants to live for what is truly valuable, what is valuable according to his kingdom. I think about like the Civil War. In the Civil War, there were two forces in opposition to each other. You had the Union and the Confederacy. What's interesting is both those forces had their own currency. There was the Union money, which was valuable to the Union, and there was the Confederate money, which was valuable to the Confederate. When the Confederacy lost, and our country was preserved and slavery ended, glory be to God, the Confederate money was worthless. That which the Confederacy valued was no longer valuable because their kingdom no longer existed. Jesus knows that the kingdom of this world is not going to win the war. It's not going to exist for all eternity. His kingdom is going to win. And so he wants us to live not by what is valuable here, by that which will be ultimately valuable, that which will be valuable in his kingdom, which is forever. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, the great life according to Jesus. The great life according to Jesus. And here's the big idea that I think Jesus is after in these verses. 
We're going to give it to you up front, and then we're going to kind of walk through these verses to see how this text shows us these things. Here's our take-home for today. In God's kingdom, greatness is serving others in Jesus' strength because this leads to Jesus' grace. Greatness is according to God. In God's kingdom, greatness is serving others in Jesus' strength because this leads to Jesus' praise. We're going to look at two questions that this text guides us through. What does it mean to serve and why is serving great? What does it mean to serve and why is serving great? So question number one, what does it mean to serve? In verse 25, Jesus talks about how greatness was typically perceived in Near East culture. He points out how kings would operate from a place of lordship. Lordship is a position of power. And so greatness was about having a position that gave you power. And then he says that they use that power so that they can be called benefactors. A benefactor in ancient times was someone that you owed something to. And so what would happen is people would use their power to do things for other people And then those people would owe them, and so their power would be increased. I think of it kind of like how the Godfather operated, right? He would do things for other people, and then, someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. (laughs) I worked hard on that accent all week. But greatness in the ancient world was all about having power and using that power for self-gain. Now, today, we don't go around calling ourselves benefactors. But has the definition of greatness changed all that much? It's interesting. Servant leadership is a big buzzword right now in leadership philosophy. Be a servant leader so you can get ahead in your job and do better for yourself. Be a servant leader because if you're a servant leader, you will get results. We have cultural cliches like, remember, it's better to give than it is to receive. Why? Because it'll make you feel good about yourself. Serve others so that you can get self-validation. Right? This world will talk about serving in a positive light, but will still talk about it in a way that, hey, do this service for what it does for you. It is still about self Empowerment, still about yourself and getting power for more power for yourself. But Jesus flips that script entirely on its head. Serving is not about being self-empowered, and serving is not about what it does for you. No, he says very clearly in verse 26, but not so with you. That's not how Christians are meant to serve. That's not what followers of Jesus are meant to do. We don't serve what it does for us. He says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. We need to understand that the ancient nearest culture was a culture of honor. And the higher you are in the birth order, the more honor that you receive. So if I got any firstborns here, you were in a good position. Any lastborns, you were in trouble. Um, it's a similar dynamic as he talks about those who were allowed to sit at the table and those who served at the table. In our culture, you can actually make a decent living being a server. But in that culture, what would happen is the guests of honor, they would sit at the table and be served, and it was the job of the lower class, those who were not worthy to sit at the table. It was the job of the, the servants to serve those who were greater 
than that. And so what Jesus is saying here is the way to be great is not to be like the oldest and pursue the highest honor. It's not to be like the one who sits at this table and gets the most esteemed role. No, serving according to Jesus is not about anything having to do with us. Serving according to Jesus is not about our personal sense of fulfillment. It's not about receiving accolades. It's not about even the results that we see from what we do. No, it has nothing to do with us. According to Jesus, serving is all about what it has to do with others. Preacher Tony Evans says it this way, Serving is the attitude and actions that seeks the well-being of others in accordance with the will of God. That's what serving is according to God. According to God, serving has nothing to do with us. It is all about other people. According to God, we should serve not to see ourselves honored, but to see other people esteemed. According to God, we should serve not for self-gain, but for others' good. According to God, serving is not about what we get out of it, but what we can do for others through it. And Jesus, as he's talking about this, he doesn't just leave this as talk. No, he connects it to his own life. Look what he says again in verse 27. I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus has spent his whole ministry modeling servanthood to these guys. And he doesn't want them to miss miss that. He's like, think about all that I've done for you. It's all been about serving you. He had just done this a few hours ago. When they came to sit down at the Passover meal, we know from the Gospel according to John, the biography that John wrote about Jesus, that before the meal was served, Jesus did not immediately go in and take the highest seat at the table, but he put on the cloth of a servant and got on his hands and knees and washed each of his disciples' feet. Now here's what we need to know about that. Washing other people's feet was considered the job of the lowest slave. In ancient times, there was no real sewage system. Just open filth in the dust. And and people walked around in sandals. Now, I like wearing sandals, but I know that if I spend a whole day walking around the streets of Philly in sandals, that at the end of the day, my feet are going to be kind of grimy. Can you imagine how much more so that would be if there was just open sewage everywhere? Jesus down in all that filth and does something that none of the other disciples were willing to do. None of them put on that cloth and washed anyone else's feet. Jesus does it. And Jesus did things like this all throughout his ministry, things that like no one would think to do. And so, for example, there were uh, this disease called leprosy. And if you had leprosy, you were supposed to not come near people. You had to stay isolated from people, away from them. So, so that you wouldn't spread your disease, Jesus didn't worry about that at all. He didn't worry about being contagious, but drew near to people and touched them and healed them. The biggest sinners in his culture would have been tax collectors who made their living by defrauding people and prostitutes who made their living by defrauding themselves. What did Jesus do? Th- those kinds of people weren't allowed in the temple, but they would come and Jesus would have them sit at his table. And he'd minister to them and he'd rescue them, and he'd restore them. Jesus' whole life was about serving others, no matter who they were, no matter what 
how, how they were viewed by other people, regardless of how they would even, what, they couldn't give him anything in return. His whole life was about serving others. That's what his whole death was about as well. On the cross, Jesus was serving us. On the cross, as Jesus takes on our sin and our shame, the grime of those feet knew nothing to the grime of the filth of our moral depravity. But Jesus came to wash us. Not with water. No, there's only one thing in all of existence that is powerful enough to wash us clean from the guilt, shame, and grime of our sin. As the hymn goes, what can wash away our sins? What can make us whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Jesus came among us as a servant at the cost of his own life. And what we see him saying here is that Jesus does not want his followers to just be fans of what he did for them. No, he wants us to be his followers and follow in his example and serve others just like he now, we can't serve others by obviously giving our lives for their sins. Jesus did that once and for all. Praise be to God. But we can serve others by being committed to their good, even at a cost to ourselves. We understand, Jesus talking about serving here. He isn't talking about you know, trying to fit in a few community service hours, doing your good deed for the day. Seeing, okay, yeah, here's my life and all that I do with my school and career and family. And, you know, what, what's the few things that I can fit in on the side in my extra time? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about serving that was going to cost him his own life. He's talking about this. This is a whole lifestyle that we're meant to have. Serving others is an identity that we're meant to live out of. We serve because Jesus served us. And so as we are his followers, we serve because we're following him who served us. It's a lifestyle. It impacts every inch of our existence. It's meant to inform the choices we make and don't make. Life isn't just about me and doing what's most convenient and comfortable for myself. No, my life is now turned outward and is meant to be about serving other people like Christ. And there's a cost to that. In fact, I think if we're not understanding that serving comes at a cross, then we don't understand what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is talking about costly service. This kind of service will cost us our time. It will cost us our finances. This, this kind of service is, is making a demand on our lives. There's a cost to that. One of my heroes is a man named Mark Bailey. Mark Bailey is a longtime member of the church that I had the privilege to grow up in and be a pastor of for a little bit. When that church first started, for over 10 years, Mark Bailey was the first to come and the last to leave every single Sunday for 10 years. He did everything from setting up chairs to running the sound equipment to greeting people who came. Afterwards, he would have guests over to his house for lunch. He led a small group at the church. He was on the church finance team. And it wasn't just stuff he'd do for his church. No, he regularly cut his neighbor's lawn. He would go into Camden to feed the homeless. 
He cared about orphans and, adop- and, and, and ended up adopting two children. And don't just think that he was so busy. Man, wh- where did he fit in time for his family? Oh, no, no. His family was usually with him and being involved in all those things. And let me tell you, they're all adults now who are also serving Jesus in many ways. Mark's serving didn't stay with Mark but went down to a next generation. Because one of the best ways to disciple your children to love Jesus is to get them involved in serving other people like Jesus. Now, if you look at Mark Bailey's life, he's a middle-class accountant. From the world's perspective, he has not achieved much. But from God's perspective, he's living a life of true greatness. You're like, man, that, that doesn't seem great. That seems really hard. Yeah, it is really hard. It is really hard. Serving was kind of hard for Jesus. It led to his death. Serving others is hard, and I don't think we're really understanding what Jesus means by serving if we're not asking the question, what's so great about that? Like, this is not something that, like, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, makes me feel good about me. He's like, no, 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 this is serving that's going to come at a cost for me. And I, I don't think we're fully understanding the depths of what Christ is saying unless we're starting to ask the question, what is so great about this? Because this doesn't seem so great. This seems actually pretty, pretty hard and not something that I want to do. What, why is serving so great? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's the next point. Question number two, why is serving great? Notice what happens after Jesus gives this teaching on serving. He talks about, hey, I want you guys to serve. And then verses 28 through um, 30, he says, you're, you're going to serve in my kingdom. So he's connecting serving to his kingdom. And then without skipping a beat, he talks to Peter. He calls him Simon. He goes interchangeably by two different names. And, and he talks to Peter about how Satan is coming after him. He tells Peter that Satan has demanded of him. That Satan wants to take him out. And then Peter responds, verse 33, Lord, I'm ready. I'm ready. Satan's coming, I'm ready. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus responds by saying, you have no clue what you're talking about. I tell you, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. So think about it. Jesus tells Peter that not only is Satan after him, he also tells him, you know what? You're going to lose that battle. You're going to fail and fall. Uh, Thanks, Jesus. Really appreciate that boost of self-confidence, you know? Like, who invited this guy over to dinner? Well, Jesus was saying that to Peter because he didn't want to boost his self-confidence. In fact, that's exactly what was the problem with Peter. See, Peter's self-confidence is the problem that Jesus is seeking to address. Peter took an internal inventory and was like, yeah, I'm good. I have all I need within myself. I'm ready to stand against whatever comes. Bring it on. But Jesus says, you have no clue about what's about to hit you. And because you have no clue, you're absolutely going to fall. You see, Peter thought he was too strong to fall, but Jesus knew that Peter was so full of himself that he was destined to fall. But watch. Jesus says that Peter's fall will not be final. In verse 32, he says, when you have turned again. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you're, you're going to turn away from me. You're going to deny me. You're going to run away from me. You're going to fail. 
But then he says Peter's going to be restored. Peter's going to turn back to Christ. How? How's that going to happen? It's because of what Jesus says in verse 32. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. See, Jesus' confidence that Peter's fall would not be final was not because Peter was strong. It was because Jesus had prayed for Peter to be strengthened. You see, Jesus knew that Peter's fall would not be final, not because of what Peter would do, not because of how strong Peter was, but because of what Jesus had done and how strong Jesus is and how Jesus was going to pray for him. Friends, you need to hear today that the Christian life is not about being strong in ourselves. It is about us knowing how much we need to be strengthened by Jesus. And there's a big difference between trying to be strong and knowing you need to be strengthened. And this is really how serving connects us to greatness. Because we can't serve in the way that Jesus prescribes without the strength that Jesus provides. You see, the only way we can serve others in the way that Jesus wants for us is through us being strengthened by Jesus for that service. There's a reason that Jesus says, hey, I want you all to serve me, and then he tells Peter, you're going to fail. Why is he doing that? He wants us to see, I'm calling you to do something that you do not have the resources within yourself to do. He's pointing out you have a need for something that is not inside of you. You have a need for something that can only come from me. In other words, when Jesus calls us to serve, what he's calling us to do is to put ourselves in situations where we are forced into dependency on him. And that's a great thing. That's a great thing because the more we realize our need for Jesus the more we will experience how much we already have in Jesus. The more we realize our need for Jesus, the more we position ourselves to experience how much we have already received in Jesus. Think about this way. Think about like spending money. We're serving others. Serving others is is spending money, right? We, We can only spend money that we have. Right? We can't spend more money that we have. If we try to spend more money that we have, what do we do? We go into debt. And then we need to make more money in order to pay off that debt. Right? We can't just keep spending and spending and spending. We need to, at some point, have some kind of income. We need to receive something. And I think this is why the world markets serving for how build yourself up. Because it's, what it's saying is, hey, if you're spending yourself in serving, then you're going to need some income coming back into you. And so you're going to need to serve so that you can get affirmed. You're going to need to serve so you can get validated. You're going to need to serve so you can get a good feeling. You're going to need to serve so you can see some kind of tangible result. You're going to need to serve, and as you spend that money, you're going to create a deficit in yourself that you then need to be replenished by your serving. That's what the world tells us. But what Jesus says is, hey, I'm asking you to serve, not so that you just spend yourselves and become empty, I'm asking you to serve, and what you do is as you serve through faith in me, the more you serve, you realize you don't need any other income coming in because you've already been given more than you could possibly imagine in myself. Jesus is saying, I'm asking you to serve 
and expect nothing in return because you don't need anything in return because I've already given you more than you could possibly imagine. As Jesus calls them to serve here, he's not saying, hey, I'm trying to, telling you to be stronger, I'm telling you to try harder, I'm trying to tell you to be a better Christian. No, he's saying, I'm telling you to come and be filled with me and to get your strength from me and to realize all that you receive in me. He's directing them back to himself. And see, as we do that, as we, as, we, as we serve others in the strength of Christ, what we realize is that there's just an endless supply of riches in Jesus from which we can spend our whole lives in serving. Right? If we serve others in the strength of Christ, we don't need validation from our serving. Because Jesus has already given us his validation. He has clothed us in his righteous robes. We don't need affirmation from others for our serving because Jesus has already affirmed us as God's own beloved children. We don't even need to see results from our, from our serving because Jesus has performed on our behalf and has already earned us our eternal reward. We have an endless supply of riches in Jesus and all that he has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. resurrection. Friends, th this is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ. And so we serve, not for what we get out of it. We serve from the wealth of riches of all that he's done for us in his gospel. And so here, here, here's really what's happening as we embrace a lifestyle of serving. We are putting ourselves in a position of needing to be dependent on God. And as we put ourselves in that position, we are putting ourselves in a position to realize how we can be strengthened by the gospel. Which then leads us to praise God more for his gospel. And let me tell you, living with the praise of God in your heart, not because you're strong, but because you know his strength, that's a great life. And I just have to wonder how many people listen to this and feel like, man, I'm such a failure. I'm just not strong enough. I struggle too much. I have too many weaknesses. I can't possibly ever live this way. This, this, is just, this is just too, too much. Can you imagine coming to Peter and telling Peter, man, Peter, I just could never be a great servant like you. What do you think Peter would say in response? Great servant like me? Let me tell you my story. Let me tell you about what I did on Jesus' day of his greatest need. Let me tell you about my failure great servant like me, don't look at me and be impressed by how strong I am. No, let me tell you about the strength of Christ that I received and that you can receive as well. See, see, Peter was ready to be used by God. He, it says that he was going to go and turn to and, and strengthen his brothers. When did that happen? He was able to strengthen his brothers after he'd already been humbled by himself. See, it was after he realized what a failure he was, but how much grace in Christ there is, that he was able to go and give strength to others. Because you know what? Strong people just aren't that encouraging. You ever that? Man, that I could never be like that person. You know? We, we put these people on pedestals that we think could never, we could never attain. Strong people aren't just encouraging. They're actually pretty discouraging to be around. But I love being around people who know what it is to be weak. And do not point to themselves and how strong they are. And let me give you my five steps to living a great life now. So you can be awesome like me. You know, the people who come and say, I got nothing. 
let me tell you about the one who can give you strength. And if he can strengthen me, let me tell you how much he can strengthen you. Friends, if you take an internal inventory and you're like, man, I see this call to serve and I'm just not enough. God wants you to know today that he has never asked you to be enough. He's asked you to trust that he's enough. And this is why serving is great. Because serving in the way that Jesus prescribes is only, power, is only possible through the power that Jesus provides. Friends, our confidence that we can follow Christ, our confidence that we can obey commands like he gives us here, our confidence that we will finish this race to the glory of God, our confidence that our sin will not win, that our struggles will not ultimately define us, that our falls will not keep us down, that yes, we might lose some battles, but we will not lose the war, that we can live faithfully as his servants. Our confidence is not that we're going to be strong, but that Jesus will strengthen us. As he says, Peter, here, hey, I'm praying for you. Let me tell you something. In Hebrews chapter 7, you know what it says that Jesus is doing right now? What is Jesus doing right now? It says he is praying for his people at the right hand of God. Listen, as Jesus died on the cross and said it is finished, what he meant was our sin is finished. He has fully forgiven it. It did not mean that his work is finished. No, he is still working right now as he intercedes for his people, as he intercedes for you. And so what is our confidence that we can follow God's commands? It is not ourself. It is Christ who strengthens us. See, as we serve others like Jesus at a cost to ourselves, as we step into that, we're going to grow more and more aware of our need. We're going to grow more and more aware of how I just can't. It's been a long day. I'm tired. I really don't want to have that hard conversation with that person that needs to be cared for. It's been a long week. I'm tired. I don't want to go to church. It'd be a great day just to check out the live stream. My income is so small. I don't want to serve the church and be generous and give it to people who need it. Serving is going to cost us something, and it's always going to be hard. But as we step into that hard, what we realize is, I have a need for Jesus. And even better, I have Jesus for my need. As we serve others like Jesus, we grow in our awareness of our need for Jesus. And as Jesus meets us in our need, we get to experience more and more of his greatness. We get to experience more and more of how he can strengthen us to do things that we can never even imagine for ourselves. Which results in what? More and more of his praise. And through that praise, we get to experience more and more of what is true greatness. Jesus is true greatness. The great life is not a life that promotes ourself. The great life is the life that we turn outwards and we praise Christ for the great strength that he gives to people who are weak. That is the great life. It's not a life that's about me. It's a life that's about him 
That's the great life according to Jesus. And that's why greatness is serving others. Because we can only do that in Jesus' strength. And as we only do that in Jesus' strength, that's what leads us to Jesus' praise. And so in God's kingdom, greatness is serving others in Jesus' strength. Because this leads to Jesus' praise. Let's bow our heads in prayer.